Welcome to TrekCast, the official podcast of the Real Estate Council from deep in the heart of Dallas, Texas. I'm Bill San Antonio. Thanks so much for tuning in. Today, we're kicking off a five-part look at the environmental laws and liability issues associated with commercial real estate deals, both at the state and federal levels. Joining me on this educational journey is Jill Codvis, a Dallas-based environmental lawyer and track member who has successfully resolved hundreds of environmental matters involving due diligence issues, risk minimization and liability transfer, vapor intrusion, the list goes on. She's represented the likes of Aldi, Weitzman, Dart, Digital Realty Trust, Lone Star Investment Advisors, and many others. On today's episode, we'll be taking a look at how the different parties involved in a commercial real estate transaction may be liable, both to the state of Texas and the federal government, for environmental contamination issues on a property. Future episodes in this series will cover topics like hiring an environmental consultant, asbestos and mold remediation, vapor intrusion, and the Texas Environmental Cleanup Programs and Standards. Make sure you subscribe to TrekCast wherever you get your podcasts so that you can get all of our episodes right to your mobile device. Make sure you follow Trek on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn to stay updated on everything we're doing in DFW and beyond. Before we get started, I should note that this podcast and the four that will follow are intended for educational use only and are in no way meant to represent legal advice from either Jill or the Real Estate Council. Now, here's Jill Codvis in the first episode of our Environmental Law 101 educational podcast series right here on TrekCast. When we start to consider the scope of environmental law at the state and federal levels, it's clear that there are many, many ways that property owners and tenants can be found liable for a variety of issues that can have very serious consequences. Now, there's too much legislation to analyze on our show. There's just not enough time for that. And honestly, we're not trying to put people to sleep per se. Um, but could you provide a framework for how stakeholders can be held responsible and maybe give a few examples? Environmental issues are regulated at three levels of government, the local, at the county and municipal level, at the state level, and then at the federal level. And the, one of the primary ways you can be found liable or have environmental responsibilities under federal and state statutes um, is under the federal Superfund statute. It's called the Comprehensive Environmental Response Compensation and Liability Act, or CERCLA. So I may say CERCLA or, or uh, Superfund when I address that type of statute. And at the state level, the similar statute is called the state, the Texas Solid Waste Disposal Act. And under those statutes, uh, you can be liable or responsible for environmental uh, issues, contamination, uh, cleanup, uh, et cetera. Um, if you are just by virtue of your status to the property, we're going to talk about that in some detail, but I also wanted to mention to you that we'll be talking about uh, in your response to your answer, uh, there are liability uh, responsibilities also under other statutes that come about because of actions that you would take. Uh, so first we'll talk about how is liability centered around your status to the property. If you're the current owner or operator of a piece of property under CERCLA or the State Solid Waste Disposal Act, or if you are a prior owner or operator of a property uh, during the time that the pollution occurred, then you are 100% liable for the environmental condition of that property. Uh, no matter when the, when the pollution occurred, 
no matter who was responsible for the actual polluting active activity. And it's 100% liability, strict, joint, and several. So a federal or state agency could come after you as the current owner of the property 100% for the, the liability, the cost of the cleanup, the response actions, whatever it may be. Um, now, there is a provision in that statute which allows a right of contribution by one potentially responsible party, say a current owner against a prior owner, which is another responsible party. Uh, there are two contribution provisions in that statute, and there's a lot of case law on that interpreting it, so I'm not going to go into that <laughs> to respond to your, your question. But the key thing to come away with in response to your question is that as the current owner, you are 100% liable for what's going on on that property environmentally, even if it all occurred before you bought it and took title. Now, uh, as a tenant, you can be considered either an operator or an owner. So if you start taking ownership uh, responsibility through a, an extended ground lease, or if you sublease a property and that tenant then becomes a polluter and impacts the, the environmental status of that property, they, you may be found to be an owner and have responsibility that way. Also, as a tenant, uh, you can be the operator. Now, uh, if you contaminate the property during your tenancy, then you're liable as the operator and you would have to be responsible under these statutes at the state and federal level. If it's pre-existing environmental contamination, yes, you're still in a category of liability, but generally the, uh, the federal government and the state are not going to go after the operator when the property owner is available and they have deep pockets or financial capability to pay. Um, the other category that I mentioned briefly was that you can be liable based on your actions. So one is you're liable based on the, your status to the property. The other is have you taken some action that makes you liable or responsible under a federal or a state environmental statute? So the first would be are you generating or treating or storing or disposing of hazardous waste? Um, the State Solid Waste Disposal Act will regulate that as does the uh, Federal Resource Conservation and Recovery Act. And if you do any of that, then you're liable party if something occurs that's problematic. Uh, the, the other point on that statute is that that statute regulates petroleum storage tanks. So even if you're not an owner of a tank that's on your property, uh, but you own the property itself, it may belong to the tenant, be registered in the tenant's name, you're still 100% liable for the underground storage tank on the property and, and uh, a petroleum storage tank on the property. Um, the second category of liability based on actions is um, with regard to production or uh, use, disposal, importation of certain specific chemicals. And that's under the Federal Toxic Substances Control Act. And a lot of people hear that and they think, well, I'm not using any of those things. But in fact, that regulates uh, PCBs, asbestos, radon, and lead-based paint. So those are all things that we would have to deal with in the real estate industry. Um, the next category of actions would be if you emit pollutants into the indoor, into the air, into the uh, ambient air outside. Uh, there's a federal uh, Clean Air Act and there's a state uh, act that would be similar that would govern those uh, requirements, the Texas Clean Air Act. And under the Texas Health and Safety Code, uh, you would be um, regulated. Uh, the fourth one is if you discharge, again, the operative word would be pollutants, in this case, again, into water. 
So if you discharge it into waters of the state uh, in violation of a permit or because you have no permit, uh, then you're governed under the Federal Water Pollution Control Act. And in the state of Texas, you would be governed under the Texas Water Code. Um, the last one is not a statutory obligation, but it's a, a common law tort uh, liability that you may incur. If you cause damages to a neighboring property owner, to someone on your property that may be a tenant or a guest or an employee, then you may be sued for trespass, negligence, strict liability based on statute, and, and nu nuisance uh, claims may also be a part of your damages calculations. Is there anything that property owners, tenants, and prospective buyers can do to protect themselves and more importantly, their current and future real estate investments from situations that can result in having to pay upwards of hundreds of thousands of dollars in remediation and other liability-related costs? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and it goes back again to the CERCLA statute. Um, when that statute was passed in 2002, it only had one way you could get it out of, out of Superfund or CERCLA liability, and that was, uh, can you claim the innocent landowner defense? It was an absolute defense to liability if you could. And it required that you take certain pre-acquisition environmental due diligence or pre-lease, although there was a question of whether or not applied to leases at that time. And if you met a certain standard where it, it showed that you did not know or have reason to know of contamination on the property, but you bought the property, you leased it, and, and afterward you discovered contamination, in that case you could claim the innocent purchaser defense. Uh, but in, not, in 2002, CERCLA was amended, um, and it was amended to add two liability limitations. Um, so in addition to a defense to liability, now if you take certain actions, you may have an ability to claim uh, that you are exempt from liability or your liability is limited, not so much exempt, but limited. So um, I may, it might be helpful for, for me first to go through for you what are the new uh, innocent landowner uh, defense obligations because now those same obligations to meet that standard apply to the new Lim, lim, uh, liability limitations, which are the contiguous uh, property owner and the bona fide prospective purchaser. Um, so, so under the innocent purchaser defense, if you want to determine that you ensure that you meet that uh, defense standard, um, you have to have contamination that was only discovered after you bought the property or leased it. It can't apply to something that you knew about when you bought the property. And you have to show that you met a, an EPA standard called All Appropriate Inquiries Rule, which we'll talk about uh, hopefully later uh, in our session. Uh, but for now, we'll just kind of walk through what the, the standards are in response to your question. Um, you have to show that that release was caused by an act or omission of some third party uh, with whom you have no employment or contractual or financial relationship whatsoever. So in other words, you're totally independent from whoever the polluter was. Um, and that even though you undertook all appropriate inquiry into uh, the prior uses and ownership of the property prior to taking title or leasing it, um, you still had, based on that very thorough investigation, not been able to and had not determined that was any, you hadn't discovered there was any contamination on the property. Um, and a, a final uh, thing is that you have to show you didn't cause or contribute to that contamination. So 
there's a second obligation, though, that you have to comply with. So even if you did all this environmental due diligence and you met the requirement before you bought or leased the property, you then still have a continuing obligation, and that's a legal term in the statute, to meet certain requirements once you take ownership. Um, and those are just, you generally think if you knew about contamination on your property, you discovered it after you bought it, uh, what would you do? Well, you'd report it to the state. You'd be required to do that. You'd be required to allow them onto the property or to allow any third party onto the property to take whatever action is necessary. Um, if there were uh, restrictive covenants or use or, or activities that were limited on the property, you would be required to comply with those, whether they were filed in the property records or whether they were part of an agreed order that a third party agreed to subsequent to your ownership, et cetera. So that could mean you know, not using the property for residential purposes, um, uh, not uh, using the groundwater underneath the property and a number of other uh, uses and, uh, and restrictions, or there may be an engineering control uh, that you'd have to comply with that said you maintain a cover over certain portions of your property. Uh, you also have to provide cooperation and assistance to that government entity or third party that's coming on and uh, to the property to take uh, action and uh, provide any other required notices that would be required with regard to that uh, contamination. The other interesting thing about the innocent landowner defense, and it applies only to this defense, not to the liability limitations, um, that I'll share with you uh, further, but uh, in this regard, if you did everything to comply with that defense and you now believe you, you met the criteria, when you go to sell the property, you must disclose what you know to the subsequent purchaser. And if you don't do that, then you've lost your right to claim the innocent landowner defense. Uh, the other two, as I mentioned, were the contiguous landowner or the contiguous property owner liability limitation and the bona fide prospective purchaser. And on the contiguous property owner liability limitation, it kind of sounds, it is exactly what it sounds like. It relates to contamination that is migrating onto your property from an offsite source. But just as with the innocent landowner defense, you cannot know about that contamination prior to taking title or leasing the property. If you want that liability limitation, it means, again, you took all appropriate inquiry into prior ownership or uses uh, before taking title or leasing the property. And then after you took title, you discovered the contamination. Then uh, if you did all of that necessary due diligence and you comply with those, again, those continuing obligations post-closing, and you show that you didn't cause or contribute to the contamination, nor did anyone with whom you're related by financial or contractual or employment means, uh, then you can uh, claim a liability limitation under that standard, under that one. Uh, the last one is the one that everybody really loved in the real estate community when in the 2002 amendments to, uh, to the Brownfield, uh, uh, or they're called the Brownfield Amendments, and that's called the Bonafide Prospective Purchaser Liability Limitation. And the reason they love this one so much is that this applies even if you know about contamination before you take title or you lease the property. So uh, once again, uh, you have to undertake that environmental due diligence that meets all appropriate inquiries into prior uses and, and uh, ownership. You have to show you're not potentially responsible for the release that you have identified pre-acquisition uh, and that uh, 
you're not again affiliated with anyone that might have created that that issue on the property. And then once again, after you take title, you have to show that you you have uh, continue to assist others with uh, anything that needs to be addressed on the property. Meet those continuing obligations, as they're called. I'd like to go back to the idea of conducting environmental due diligence. Um, it seems like a fairly uh, standard practice for um, any any party involved in um, a, a land acquisition or a, a major renovation, any any real estate related deal. What are some of the standards for conducting environmental due diligence? I, I know you talked about a few um, a few in, in the previous question, but um, how how would one go about meeting those standards? Well, again, that's a great question because in order to meet those standards, in order to get the liability limitations or to qualify for that innocent landowner defense, you have to actually comply with a very specific uh, set of standards that are set out in a federal rule, which we call by abbreviation the EPA rule. If anyone's interested that's listening to us, it's at 40 CFR Part 312. And uh, that rule goes through the detail of the pre-acquisition environmental due diligence or the pre-lease that must be accomplished, and it details what are the continuing obligations that you must meet after you purchase property, where you've either discovered the contamination afterward that migrates on your property or that you've discovered the contamination pre-acquisition on your property. Um, uh, so the pri that primary standard is the EPA rule, and it has those two parts, the all appropriate inquiries, and then the continuing obligations. And the EPA uh, has recognized that if you meet the American Society for Testing and Materials standard for uh, phase one environmental due diligence, it's number 1527, then you've met the first part of that requirement under the EPA rule. What are some of the issues associated with performing uh, phase one site assessments and drafting phase one reports that our listeners should uh, be aware of? Well, one of the requirements of the EPA rule that most people are surprised by is that the report must be ripe. It needs to meet a ripeness test. And by that, I mean it has to be current within six months of the closing date on your transaction or your lease. Uh, so if you're using a, a different report or you've prepared a report and then the transaction is delayed for any reason, and now your phase one report was dated in January, but you're closing in November, you'll have to get that report updated or obtain a new uh, phase one. And a good portion of that report would have to be updated. And the reason is that the federal government believes they're giving you a release of liability to some extent. They're limiting your liability. So they want to make sure you've looked at the most up-to-date data in the data uh, package, and they want to make sure you've gone back to the site and you've looked at it currently as to what the operations are today. Uh, the other uh, issue that I find is very uh, important and that most people are not recognizing and that consultants are not recognizing as something that they need to accomplish for you is that part of the all appropriate inquiries process is that you must look at whether or not there are liens or any activity or use limitations on the property. Some people think that if you just have the lawyer look at the chain of title or that it was re reviewed by the, the title company, that's sufficient to meet this standard. But in fact, it may not be. 
And it's best to include it in the environmental consultant scope of work as an added task uh, because they can obtain a package from a local vendor or environmental data resources that will go through not just a property search, but also may pick up uh, agreed orders or other types of environmental uh, closures that would include restrictions on use or, or activities on the property, or uh, could even lead to an environmental lien, but may not now. Um, so I always, in my phase one scope of work requirements, include that uh, with the consultant's uh, scope of work. And it may cost extra because there's an additional charge for these reports. It's generally around $250 for per parcel. So if you have a property transaction that involves a property with more than one legal description, more than one legal parcel, then you need to obtain one for each uh, parcel. Um, also, um, with regard to the phase one report itself, um, there's a lot involved with that report that can become problematic on the due diligence or it can assist on limiting liability through the due diligence process. Um, and that, um, so I'll give you a few recommendations that I give to my clients as well in response to your question. I never use a, an environmental report prepared by, uh, for another party. If we're the purchaser, uh, we want to make sure that the party doing the phase one and investigating the property does it with the best interests of my client in mind who is coming from the perspective of the purchaser. If I'm the seller, I might have done a phase one environmental site assessment just before the transaction so I could try to have my buyer use that. Uh, but in most cases, I would tell my client, no, you need to have someone doing the report for you that solely has your interests and perspective in mind. Um, and that would also uh, be applicable to an update of a phase one. Um, another uh, point I would like to uh, make is that the, the ASTM standard is very specific. It's, it specifically follows the requirements of that all appropriate inquiries rule. It does not include a number of items we call non-scope items like Re, uh, asbestos testing or observations, water intrusion or mold testing or observations, um, lead-based paint, uh, lead in the drinking water. And so my, I always ask that those not be included in the report. Uh, I think that's a very important because sometimes the observations will be made uh, that are not even issues of relevance or issues you may not want uh, to be addressed at this level uh, in the transaction. Um, if you want those issues addressed, my suggestion is always that they be included in a separate uh, letter report. Um, additionally, you want to make sure when you get that report that they have not said, you asked us not to include those uh, issues in the report, and so we did not. You just don't want any mention or reference to those non-scope issues at all. Um, an additional point is that uh, if you are a seller, the phase one environmental consultant will send you a user, or a, excuse me, a, uh, 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 an owner questionnaire to fill out. And this asks you all about the history of the property and the uses currently. My uh, suggestion is that the seller not complete that document. It's not a required document by any of these standards. Um, and there's no need to be making reps and warranties by filling out that form. There's a second questionnaire, however, that does have to be completed for part of the phase one process. That's called the, the uh, user questionnaire. And it's completed by the party that is having the phase one prepared for them. 
so that they can claim these liability exemptions or the innocent landowner defense. Um, and in that case, when they engage the phase one consultant, they generally don't know yet if there are any environmental issues. So it's valid for them to complete that, either saying they don't know, or I prefer only as discussed in the phase one being prepared for us by XYZ company. There is one question in there they will have to answer, uh, which is going to ask them whether or not the purchase price they're, they're currently uh, proposing takes into account any environmental uh, concerns on the property. The reliance party name on the report is important. Um, many times when brokers are the first parties handling the transaction or the sale of the property, they'll get the phase one and they'll put they, their name will become the reliance party on the cover and that's not what you want. The party that's going to rely on the report must be listed as the reliance party, uh, both on the cover and in the, uh, in the report content. Uh, and it should be the full legal name of the party. Now, if you're, you're in, you've entered a sale contract with one entity name, but you may assign that contract later to an entity that hasn't yet been formed, then the way you take care of that is either you get a reliance letter later for the report for the actual purchasing entity, or your language in the report should actually have a reliance paragraph that's very broad and detailed that allows reliance by anyone affiliated uh, with the party engaging the phase one consultant and their lenders and uh, and their attorneys and accountants and you know and each of their uh, directors and uh, 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 members and and employees etc. So it's a very broad uh, or a fairly standard language that I use there. Um, it's the last two items are important I think as well that. Uh, without trying to sell the profession, I think it's important to engage environmental counsel when you think there's an issue. Um, and even when you're on a more complicated or not so complicated site, uh, it's important to seek environmental counsel in engaging the consultant many times or in coordinating their work. Um, and more importantly than that, perhaps in many cases, it's, it's critical that you do your own due diligence on who the environmental consultant will be and what their experience is and, and, uh, and how you'll be using them and coordinating their work. That's very important because who you use can either increase your liability or minimize uh, your liability. So the, those are my recommendations specifically on the report to you. And I think further, if I might uh, make one more point, um, what a lot of people do in, in a transaction is they'll obtain a phase one report just because it's a box that needs to be checked off. Uh, they don't review it in draft, they just get a final. It may have recommendations in it, it may not, but they file it away and check they've done what they need to do. The reason that the phase one process is so much more important than that is that it helps us limit our liabilities overall, whether we're looking at um, do we get a purchase price reduction because there's an environmental issue? Um, do we want to make the contract now and as is, where is, and the buyer takes all responsibility? Are there going to be development issues that we're going to encounter? Uh, is it going to cost us more to remove impacted soil from the site? Uh, or are we going to um, are we going to have to dewater the site and then have to either collect that water into frac tanks and, and uh, dispose of it off-site or obtain permits to perhaps pre-treat it on-site before we could discharge it into a sanitary or storm sewer. So there are a number of other reasons that are critical to reviewing this and to performing environmental due diligence. 
And if you don't do the right level of due diligence now when you're the purchaser, then when you go to resell the property or to refinance it, you can be sure that the next purchaser will be in line to do that. And then you'll have to deal with those issues at a time where it might require that you provide environmental insurance to a buyer or take a much lower price on the, on the property purchase. That's all for today's episode. I'd like to thank Jill Codvis for breaking down the different ways that you can be held responsible if a contamination issue is discovered on your property. Subscribe to TrekCast on your preferred podcasting platform so you can get future episodes in this series right to your mobile device. And follow the Real Estate Council on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Once again, I'm Bill San Antonio. Thanks for listening.